Amen. Good to see you tonight. Why don't you turn and say hi to five people? And now let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, beginning chapter 2 tonight. As we saw in the first chapter of Romans, Paul kind of, after the introductory section and letting the Christians there in Rome know how anxious he was to come and see them, And then he introduces his theme, which is the gospel and walking by faith. Then, as we saw last week, he starts talking about God's wrath on unrighteousness. And he really baited the people to a degree. Because as he he starts off innocently enough about people who were unthankful and so on, Next thing you know, he's talking about the gross sins that everyone points out as being evil and rightfully so, and he calls that kind of immorality out for what it is. But then he starts to go down the list, and he mentions things like being disobedient to parents. And, and you know, as you look down through there and all the, all the ways that he describes the behavior of people who don't know God including just not glorifying God and including you know things like covetousness and strife and envy and gossip and all those sorts of things after he runs down this whole list then he says who knowing the righteousness of God righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, there are still people who look at this list of sins, and they still, all they see is those sins that are the really bad ones that we consider to be bad, those sexual sins, the homosexuality and adultery and so on. And even for some people last week who I discussed this with after the study, there's the thing of, is God really making a big deal about gossip? Is he really putting covetousness on the same level with these other sins? And our tendency is to look on the passage as a whole, but it doesn't make sense that God's going to say that you're living in this grossly immoral lifestyle, and then somehow that leads to gossip or to, to materialism and things like that, I believe clearly what he was doing was he started with things that most everyone, except for the people who are doing them, and many of them would agree, oh yeah, that's bad. And then he opens the list up and, and just nails everyone and how in the world could you look at that list and not think, I'm in trouble. I need salvation. I, I am guilty of some of these things that he says are the cause for the wrath of God to come. And I know that's, what, that's the reaction that Paul was trying to get. He's going to present the remedy. But here in chapter 2, he focuses his attention on those who think they are righteous. That is, those who are judging others. And probably quite a bit, the ones he has in mind in those days were some of the Judaizers who felt they were just, they, they looked at the law and thought, yeah, I'm doing it all. Paul had that perspective himself growing up. As far as the law, he said, I I was blameless from my perspective. That's the problem with the Jews. They never did get the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to help them to realize they can't save themselves. 
point of the law is I can't be good, not good enough anyway. But Paul focuses his attention now on those who have been cheering through chapter 1. The people who are going, <clears throat> the same people who today would hear you go down these lists of sins as we did last week and go preach it, brother. Yeah, nail those sinners. Nail those evil people. Let them know, you know, it's really refreshing to come to church and have somebody call sin, sin. Well, it's not supposed to be refreshing. And Paul makes it really clear now in the second chapter. He focuses on the Jews as we get to verse 17. But in the beginning, his attention is drawn to those who are pointing the fingers at others. Those who believe that chapter 1 doesn't involve them. They can read through that list of sins and go, yeah, the trouble is those people weren't here to hear that last Wednesday. Boy, I want to get that tape and give it to all those people who live that way. I just wish the non-Christians could get a load of that message. And Paul now lowers the boom on those who believe they are righteous. And he says, hey, talking to you too, you need salvation just as badly as the most vile sinners in the world. You're not different than they are. You aren't superior to them. None of us has the right to point the finger at other people's sin as if we don't do that, as if we are somehow better or superior to those people who are living that way. So chapter 2 opens up, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Jesus talked about this and said that if you want to get mercy, you need to show mercy because you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. You can't have one standard for you and another standard for others. And here Paul is just bringing up, and this is a, a basic principle that you'll discover if you watch carefully in life. People who are judging others, people who are pointing the finger at others, people who are acting superior to others, are betraying something that lies deep within them. They are calling attention to, in their own lives, those very things with which they judge others. And you'll see this happen again and again. Judgmental people are being judgmental for a very good reason. It's because they are trying to put up smoke and mirrors so they don't have to face their own sin. Now, judgmental people almost never know that that's what they're doing because they're deceived. They can't, they can't see their own sin. We tend to like to judge sins kind of based on the curve. And so if I am doing things that other people aren't doing, then that makes me feel good because I can see that I think I'm doing better than a lot of people I know. The problem is that's not the standard. The standard is absolute perfection. The standard is Jesus Christ himself. And we have all come short of the glory of God. And Paul's going to develop that later as we get into chapter 3. But right now what he's talking about is condemnation. And he wants to paint with a broad enough brush so that everyone is feeling the way that some people felt when they read chapter 1. If there's someone who right now is involved in an adulterous affair and they read that God's condemnation is on adulterers, they hang their head and they go, oh boy, I know what I'm doing. And there's a whole category of people who would read chapter 1. Some of them would be mad because they don't want God to tell them that they're wrong. And so some of them would get upset by the passage. 
Others tend to get sort of defeated by it and feel, oh, I'm, when it's listing sins, I do a bunch of these. But there's a whole different category of people, and that is the people who listen to talk about sin, and they see others in the passage. They think of people who are those kind of people. And really, to be a, a judgmental person is one of the most hazardous places to be spiritually. And let's face it, we're all there at one time or another. We all fall into legalism and judgmentalism. It's a coping mechanism that we kind of have to deal with our own sin. And what Paul is doing here is calling attention to the fact that when you point the finger at others, that you are proving that you have a problem. People who understand the nature of their own sin, people who confess their sins, the word confess means to say the same thing, to agree with God. When you really confess your sin, and you agree with God about your sin, one of the first thing that happens is you quit noticing other people's sins except to have compassion for them and to pray for them. But as soon as you start convincing yourself that you are a good person, you start noticing right away that other people are bad. And Paul would say, the very fact that you're spending time and energy being disgusted by sinners in the world is showing that you do not see yourself clearly at all. And this, for all of us, should be a warning wake-up sign. As soon as we start looking at sinners and being disgusted by them, a little beeper should go off inside our head. Because when God looks at people who are sinning, he looks on them with compassion, with a desire to cleanse and to forgive them. But for us, we have a bias because we sin, all of us, and for the most part, we're slow at taking responsibility for our own sins. And I, it's just the nature of humanity, I can see your sin so much better than I can see my own. In fact, if you do the same sin that I do, I really don't like you. <laughs> you bug me. Because when I see you, it reminds me of those parts of me that aren't right. And so Paul just lays it out right here from the start, this principle. Judgmental people are betraying their own guilt. Judgmental people are demonstrating by their judgmentalism their own issues that they are trying to hide from. Remember in John's Gospel when the guys caught a woman in adultery? Now it's interesting, they didn't catch a man, just a woman. Not sure how that works. But they brought her to Jesus there in the temple and they said, the law says adulterers should be stoned. What do you say? And they all had their rocks and they were ready because they knew, what could he say? It's the law. We're right here in the temple. And Jesus spun it around and he said, yeah, I know what the law says. The question is, who has the right to exercise that punishment? And he said, tell you what, whichever of you is without fault, you cast the first stone. Then we'll all jump in and finish this off. This poor gal is sitting there in the dirt, humiliated. And then Jesus began to just, he stooped over and he started to write in the dust. And it says that in the order of their age, the oldest first, as he wrote, 
began to walk away, drop their stones and leave, from the oldest to the youngest. Now, we can only speculate what Jesus wrote in the dirt, but something in it had to do with or was connected with these accusers. Ultimately, all the accusers were gone, and Jesus told her, I'm not accusing you. Go and sin no more. Don't live like this, but you can go, and and you're free to not live like this. But people have, have suggested that maybe Jesus was writing the names of the people who were there ready to throw stones, and then perhaps just writing a little reminder of a secret sin that they had. Naturally, it was easier to get the old people. They've had a chance to do more. But maybe just writing their name and then writing a date and a, and a place where something happened or writing their name out and writing an evil thought that they had had or something that they thought no one knew about. And seeing that, it's like, okay, I guess I can't do it. There's a huge lesson there that's connected to our tendency to cover our own sinfulness that is, it seems, in inverse proportion to our willingness to throw stones at others for what they are doing. And often preachers that harp on sin the loudest, you give them some time and you'll find out what they themselves are hiding. And See, Jesus, well, he told Nicodemus in John 3 that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. He came to save the world. He came to bring good news, the gospel. That's what this book of Romans is about. That's what we're also reading about in Ephesians on Sunday mornings. And verse 1 here just lays it out so clearly that your guilt is, is demonstrated by your judgmentalism, by your pointing the finger at others. This should make us a little slow to accuse. Now, that's not to say that those accusations aren't accurate. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that oh, you shouldn't accuse people because they don't deserve it. No, if they are doing these sins, they deserve hell. But it's not up to you to point that out. It's not up to me either. Because each of us has a problem of our own, and that is our own sin. And So Paul here is trying to make sin a personal thing and let us know You keep your nose out of other people's business. You have a full-time job dealing with what's wrong with you. He goes on to say, verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So one of the first principles, that next principles that you see here is God judges according to truth, and he knows the truth. He knows everything. We don't know the truth. We don't practice the truth. We don't tell the truth so often. From when you're a little kid, you learn to lie. You learn to pretend. A part of it is probably our sin nature and our flesh. A part of it is, you know, just that we learn to cover for ourselves and to deny even those things that are obvious, even those things that everyone knows. I remember when I was a little kid, just a couple of years old, my mom made me a cake for my birthday. And it was my favorite cake, angel food cake with chocolate frosting. And it was sitting in the kitchen waiting for everyone to get home so that we could sing happy birthday to me. And I knew it was my cake, but she said, David, don't touch the cake. But I was in the kitchen by myself with that cake. (laughs) And I, you know, you do what you do at first. As I've gotten older, I've gotten a little slicker at it. But you kind of run your finger around the edge. There's a little extra frosting that's dripping down. And 
you get that and you work it around and then whoops, you scrape some part off so then you try to cover that up and lick your fingers with that. And finally, I just tunneled underneath it and got a big old wad of it out and (laughs) tried to cover it up the best I could. And, and And I crammed it in my mouth as my mom was in the other room and she said, David, come here. And I walked toddling out into the living room and my older sister Donna and my mom were in there and she said, David, did you touch the cake? And I had it all over my face, all over my shirt, up to my elbows. And I said, no, I didn't. (laughs) And she and my sister just started laughing. And I thought, how did they know? (laughs) But we get better at it. And that's a danger. We get good at covering our sin. For some reason, early on, we figure out that I don't want to own up to my sin. And that's the trap. Because if you don't own up to your sin, if you lie about it, then you can't, you're not confessing it. And if you're not confessing it, it's not forgiven, according to the Scriptures. And so it's the way that Satan uses to get us to very foolishly not admit that we've sinned. Now, when you look at it objectively, you go, I know that God knows everything. So why would I not be honest with him? I also know that I've failed so many times. I mean, it's not like I'm on a streak. It's not like when I think a bad thought or something like that, it's the first bad thought I've thought of in years. I mean, I'm not... You know, I'm not somebody stepping up to the plate to bat who's hit safely in the last 27 games. I'm a guy who just struck out 15 times in a row. The pressure should be off. But, and, and that's why Jesus came and he said he was the truth and, and the truth will set you free. Because that which is destroying us is our lies. That which God wants to bring to the table is the truth. Not the truth so that he can condemn us, the truth so that he can forgive us. And yet we are foolish enough to allow ourselves to be destroyed by lies that are completely unnecessary because those sins have already been paid for. But Paul says the judgment of God is according to truth. So... Don't fool yourself. And do you think this, O man, verse 3, you who judge those practicing such things and you do those same kinds of things, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? He said, why do you think that in your judging of others, why do you think that you're not going to be judged for your sin? Why do you think you can get away with this? The judgmentalism betrays the existence of unconfessed sin, always. And the lack of confessing our sins is what's destroying us. And he goes, what makes you think you can get away with it? And again, by doing that, what are you doing? You're despising his goodness, the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering. You don't get it. That because you're getting away with something, you don't realize that's just God's patience and his love. He's not stupid. He knows. He sees. Nothing is fooling him. And not only that, He wants to forgive. And as he says there, a beautiful statement, you don't know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. We sometimes think that the judgment of God leads people to repentance. And that's probably why we're initially so busy trying to tell everyone why they're wrong, trying to point out everyone sins to them. Because in our mind, we think, 
if I can convince you of how vile you are, then maybe you'll repent and turn around. But it just doesn't work that way. It almost never works that way. Oh, there are isolated cases where someone's just devastated by being pointed out their own sin and, and finally then they turn around. But the basic principle of God is that it's his goodness, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He wants to love us and receive us, accept us, and, and then in so doing, we go, boy, why have I been living so foolishly? Why am I doing things that are destroying me when God loves me like this? Now, how this ties in, again, with the way that we look at others, the way that we judge others, if, if you want to help someone, show them God's grace and goodness. Treat them as if they are those who have been forgiven by God. Extend forgiveness to them quickly. That goodness of God is what will bring someone to repentance. The prodigal son, he had taken his inheritance and, and rush off, rushed off and just blew it in a debauched lifestyle. He was living horribly until he ran out of money and then he was in a pig pen. But through all of that, and it's an interesting story since God is represented by the father in the story, we sometimes, you got to ask yourself, why did the dad give him his inheritance? Knowing that he was a young punk and couldn't handle it. Well, I'll answer that when you tell me why God gives you the responsibilities that you have knowing how you're going to handle it. How many of us as parents were ready, qualified to be parents when we had kids? The kid just drops out of nowhere, and you're like, what do I do with this thing? Now, the prodigal son didn't really repent when he was in the pig pen. He made up a speech to come to his dad so that he could at least get a job as a servant. But the lowly nature of his life in the pig pen did cause him to come back to his dad, but only to try to cut a deal. But his father didn't even listen to his speech, didn't lecture him, didn't pick on him. He put the fancy robe around him and a ring on his finger, clothed him, cleaned him off, killed the fatted calf, and threw a big party for him. And you go... I don't think he was doing him a favor, man. That kid needed some talking to. He needed some tough love. He needed to have the law laid down on him. Well, that's what we think. We don't really know what happened to the younger boy, the prodigal son. But I suspect that being blessed with that kind of goodness is a really good chance that his life would have changed drastically after that. The one thing we do know about is the older brother, the one who was accusing his younger brother. And he was right in accusing him. But that was demonstrating something in his heart that was worse than what his brother had done, that he had a lack of compassion for his own brother and a, and a desire to see him fail. And God knows that if there's a chance for us turning around, it's going to be because we realize how good he is. That's where it lies. And if we are going to represent him, it's not so that we can belabor the point over and over again to tell people how bad they are. Instead, it's all about telling people how good God is. Now, there are some people who say, oh, yeah, we don't want to be judgmental. And so they take the approach of telling people that you're good. You need to believe in yourself. Don't believe in yourself. <laughs> you're not that great. But God is. And so why belabor what we can't do? Why be belabor how we have failed 
when our message of good news is there is a good God out there. Most people who are destroying their lives have a vague sense that they are doing so. Most religious people have no clue that they're doing the same thing to themselves. And their judgmentalism only shows that as being the case. And so Paul is here saying, it's all about the goodness of God. And what you are doing by choosing to judge others, you are choosing to ignore the very good news that could bring life into a deadly situation, that could offer forgiveness and help and repentance and righteousness if you would only pay attention to the gospel, to the good news. But in accordance, verse 5, with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. He said, by you judging others and therefore concealing your own sin, judgment will be coming to you. You will pay a price for living like that. You might be in the category of those that Jesus talked about who in the final analysis said, wait a minute, we did miracles in your name. We, we, everyone knew that we were Christians. And he said, I never knew you. There was never that relationship. And for many judgmental people, they not only show that there are secret sins that they're not owning up to, <clears throat> but they're also bringing condemnation on themselves. There's nothing like understanding God's grace and then extending it to others. But there is a judgment for those who reject that and who instead send a message that it's all about not doing these things and doing those things. You can't do that. Paul's going to make it clear throughout this book. But here he's saying God is going to render to each one according to his deeds. So this principle of judgment Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, what they have to look forward to is indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek." Now this is, well, we'll read verse 10 also, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is a difficult passage to understand because he seems to be saying that everyone's going to be judged based on what they do. Your righteousness will lead you to life and if you sin then it leads to death. But remember the context in which he is saying this, and also you can't take this in isolation from what he says later in the book. It's, he makes it very clear that we are not saved by works. We're saved only by grace. We're only saved as, as something that God does for us as we acknowledge his, our need for him. And so you can't interpret this in isolation from the rest of the book. But remember what he is addressing here is the fact that everyone's in trouble. And he is particularly addressing those people who think that they can stand on their own merits. And as soon as you judge someone else, you are saying, essentially, I can stand on my own merits. I can do it without God. And so he says, no, there is a judgment coming. And either you will be righteous and you'll have eternal life, or you will be 
seen to be in sin, and you have eternal punishment, eternal death. And that's a fact. And if you're judgmental, you're showing which side of that you are on. Now, what that doesn't include is what he later makes abundantly clear, that if we receive God's grace, if we understand what Jesus did for us, then we take on his righteousness. And you know, he's, he doesn't treat other people with condemnation. He was the one perfect man, and yet he didn't spend his time pointing fingers at other people. He didn't have to. He never did that. But, but what Paul is saying is, ultimately, yeah, if you want to face judgment based on what you've done, you can do that. And if you're found to be perfect, great, eternal life. But if you are found to be a sinner, then you've got a huge problem. For And he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, um, just because the message was presented first to them, they understood that choice that they needed to make. For there is no partiality with God. Now he's probably referring to the Jews because they were thinking that they had some kind of special deal whereby because they were the chosen people, therefore they get in on a different deal. There are people today who still believe that Jews will ultimately be saved apart from receiving Jesus Christ and becoming a part of the church. And that's ridiculous. It's, there, is neither, there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we much, must be saved except the name of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so the teachers who are teaching that somehow the Jews, based on the fact that they're Jewish, will get automatically saved in the end are sorely misunderstanding and misinterpreting Scripture. The Jews will be saved in the end, I believe that, when they turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. There isn't any partiality. Everyone either gets saved (coughs) because they are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, or they are damned because they're not, and they rejected him. And it's as simple as that. 4, verse 12, As many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. So he says some of these people who don't know anything about the law, they are still going to stand condemned. Remember he said in the, he told in the first chapter that even in their conscience, there's an awareness of something about God. And that even in creation, in nature, they can see the hand of God. And that doesn't lead them to search for him. That doesn't lead them to faithfully respond in a way that will lead to their salvation. And so he says, whether you're a Jew or not, if you don't know anything about the Jewish law, you will be condemned And there's plenty of grounds to do it apart from the law. God isn't going to take people who don't know anything about the law and tell them, you're condemned because you violated the Ten Commandments. This is one thing where I would disagree with some people who in their witnessing techniques, they say that the first thing you need to do is bring people to the law. You need to explain to them, here are the Ten Commandments, You have broken these Ten Commandments. Understand what they're saying, and I do believe that you need to bring people to an awareness of their sin before they'll ever understand that they need salvation. But the law isn't necessary to do that. There's no reason for throwing that burden on people as you share with them because they don't acknowledge that the law is anything anyway. But here, Paul is saying, don't worry. Without the law, there's plenty of other reasons to condemn a person. I mean, you come up to somebody who doesn't know anything about the law, and they may have all kinds of weird notions of what's right and wrong. 
and you can say to them, do you always do what you think you should do? And if they're honest, they'll go, well, I try. Yeah, but are there ever times you do something that you have regrets about? (laughs) Condemned. Already. Based on your own law. Based on what, what you do know. And that's how God judges people. And it's why when it talks about eternal punishment, the, the scriptures refer to different levels of punishment based on how much information that you have. And to whom much is given, much will be required. There are certain people who will incur a much stricter judgment because they have a lot more information. But Paul makes it clear here that everyone out there, there is enough grounds for them to be convicted of being sinners apart from having to pull the Old Testament law out. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So if you're a Jew and you've been taught the law, then you'll be convicted by your failure to keep the law. If you're a Gentile that doesn't know anything about the law, you will be convicted because you haven't lived up to the standards that even you yourself will acknowledge. For, verse 13, not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In other words, salvation isn't based on what you know. And that's where judgmental people often get it wrong. Because they think that they have enough information and they substitute information for humility and a relationship with God. It's why often as people grow in their so-called maturity, now I say so-called maturity because there are a lot of people who have been Christians a long time who know a lot of stuff and they think that they are mature Christians but in reality, they aren't mature Christians at all. It's possible to be a Christian for a long time and to become less and less mature, more and more judgmental, more and more thinking that you're superior to others. The, the New Testament only has one standard <coughs> for maturity, and that's love, the fruit of the Spirit. If you're growing in love... You're growing in maturity. But if you're growing in knowledge and you're becoming more crotchety and more judgmental and less loving and less compassionate and less gracious, less like Jesus, you're fooling yourself if you think that's maturity. Because he says, it's not about what's in your head. It's about what ultimately comes forth in your life, the fruit of, how you have been affected by what you learn. And really, if you're not going to let God work in your heart and in your life, you're better off not getting a bunch of information because that's just going to make you more guilty. The longer you walk with the Lord in rebellion against Him, the more judgmental and and selfish and prideful you become, the more you bring judgment on yourself. Now, I don't know how it works that when people walk with God for a long time, they start to take on a superior attitude. And I mean, I I thank God that I'm not who I used to be. And I know I can see that I have grown in areas and people are sometimes willing to point that out in a way that's a little hard to stomach. I've heard it enough times, you know, that people tell me, you know, I've seen so much growth in you. I used to just couldn't stand you. You were so annoying. You were so arrogant. You were so, you know, but I'm starting to see some progress. And I never quite know how to respond to that. But, you know, the truth is, the older I get the more aware I am of how short I fall compared to Jesus Christ, compared to his standard. 
When I was younger, I, I did think I was pretty good. As I get older, not so much. I just don't get it when people can be so deceived that they really believe that they are way better than everyone else. That they really think that the world would be a great place if everyone else was more like them. Because life ought to tell you, and the Holy Spirit working in your life and convicting you should be always reminding you of how short you fall. Now, at the same time, he always does that in a way whereby he forgives you and he blesses you and he pours his love out on you. But true maturity for a Christian comes when you're just so overwhelmed by God's love for you that you want to show that love and grace to others. When you're ungracious toward others, you're again betraying that you yourself have not received God's grace, which tells me that you're hiding something. And that's his point from verse 1 here in chapter 2, that a failure to be gracious demonstrates that you're hiding something big time. And so again, as he takes us through this, it's with the purpose of of rectifying that, of fixing what's wrong. But in the process of it, again, he's taking us to what does it really take to stand on your own? Because you are either standing purely in the grace of God or you are going to answer for your own sin. And you better be righteous enough to do that if you've taken yourself out of the grace of God. And the first way you'll notice if you're out of the grace of God is that you're not showing the grace of God to others. That's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer interrupted his own prayer as he said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he put in a parenthesis, for if you don't forgive others their trespasses, God will not forgive you your trespasses. I don't know why that verse just doesn't scare the the living daylights out of us. Because are we that good at forgiving that we could say, yep, if God forgives me the same way I forgive others, great. Oh, we're so deceived. And that's what Paul is trying to, to drive home here not to beat anybody up and make you feel bad, but to help us all to find ourselves at the foot of the cross going, oh, I am so needy. I am so desperately in need of a Savior. I need God's grace so much. And I've fooled myself sometimes into thinking that I'm, you know, yeah, I needed it back in the day. But now pretty much, I've got it together. God has more important things to worry about than me because I'm really, I'm good. I'm doing okay. So he says, it's not listening and what you know. It's the doers of the law that are justified. For, verse 14, when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. He said, Gentiles who don't even know the law, don't know the rules, nobody's taught them anything, sometimes they do something right. And when they do something right, It's showing that they do have that awareness. There is an opportunity. The law is working within their conscious minds. Now, do non-Christians have enough conscience to save them? No, and this isn't about being saved. This is about being condemned. But he's proving his point by saying, you can't explain how someone could ever do anything good without 
understanding that God has placed within them a capacity for good. And that's what you have to deal with. Now again, he's talking to those who think that they're better than the Gentiles. But what he's saying is, you look down at them because they don't know the rules. They don't have the law. But the truth is, you look at their lives, and in fact, they sometimes outshine you. Sometimes you see them doing good in a way that would be superior to you who know the law. And, you know, isn't this true? When we look at the world, we do see good. Now, there's nothing out there that's good enough to save someone. But there is enough good out there for us to be ashamed at the times when we aren't the ones who are doing that. I was watching a thing on um, TV, and they were showing one of these community groups that goes out and does kind of like what the home makeover show does. And they get a bunch of uh, construction people together, and they go over to somebody's house whose house has fallen apart, and they fix it up and just bless these people. And and everybody chips in, lots of people from the neighborhood working on it. And you look at that, and it's like, you know, that's really cool. And you might look at it in a jaded way and say, yeah, but they're just doing it for the publicity or for the write-off or whatever. But I don't believe that. I think that there are people who don't know anything about God who have his testimony the, the fragments of the image of God that remains in them post-fall, and they are capable of doing good things. And we shouldn't look down on them and judge them as if somehow we are superior to them because we know more than they know. Our calling is to share with them what we know, but not in a way that pretends like they are completely worthless and we are so superior he paul's saying it all comes down to what you do ultimately and look at some of these people and what they do they are demonstrating by the goodness in their lives that i've been working in their lives too and so those who are under the law yes they've had the testimony of the law But those who are without law, hey, they're just like you. They do some good things. They do some bad things. They can't save themselves. And so he says, their thoughts either accuse or excuse them. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. What he's trying to show is, you guys are all in the same boat. I don't care if you can judge yourself on a different scale. You may know a lot. Other people don't know much. But the truth is, man, none of us does everything that we ought to do. None of us can stand perfect before God. Sometimes we see good, we see bad. Now, it certainly should be that People who are children of God have a level of life that should shine and stand out. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So there should be a shining forth of our lifestyles where people look at us and go, I mean, and this would be great if this was the case, that people go, you seem like such a good person. You must be a Christian. But I don't know. I don't necessarily see a lot of that. I don't even think it myself. Sometimes I'll see somebody and go, wow, you're dressed really in an out-of-date sort of way, and you look kind of stuck up and stuffy and and miserable, and kind of blah. Hmm. I'll bet you're a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it's too bad that a lot of times that turns out to be right. <coughs> now, I will sometimes, it's a, it's a good um, opening line, and I do this a lot when I'm witnessing to people, is I see somebody who seems really happy, and I go, you know what, I've noticed you seem to love your job. You're really um, friendly and outgoing. You've got to be a Christian. You must be. And it's funny because if they are a Christian, they just light up and glow. And they're like, I mean, wouldn't that just make your year if somebody saw you and said, you're a Christian because you're loving and joyful and those kinds of things. Um, what's cool is sometimes they aren't a Christian. And they go, well, no, I, I uh, you know, try to be a good person, but not really into religion. And then I go, yeah, no, I'm not really into religion either, but I just, man, I would have sworn with the joy in your life that you must have gotten that from the Lord because that's the only way I've ever found to have that kind of joy. And, and then they'll, they'll say, well, to be honest with you, I'm not as happy as I sometimes appear. This is just an act. And, and then you're able to share with them. But here, Paul's going to great lengths to let these people know we are all in the same boat. We're all condemned. We're all sometimes having our good days and our bad days. But don't set yourself apart over and above others. Don't point the finger at others. It will, number one, it will mislead you about your own righteousness. As soon as you start thinking you're pretty good, which is what always happens when you're pointing out how bad other people are, as soon as that happens, how can you really repent of your own sins? How can you even know that you're sinning? You ever hear that ringing in your ear that's, <laughs> that's saying, you know, you're wrong? I think you might as well answer that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I thought it was Mark. <laughs> but, see, so to put ourselves as set apart, short, short sells us because it makes me think I'm better than I really am and that I don't need to repent every day. But over and above that and beyond that, it just causes me to not reach out to anyone else in a way that I could ever connect with them. People can tell when you think you're better than they are. And when you think that somehow... It, it, it comes off really condescending when you're trying to share with someone who, you know they feel like you are just patting them on the head and telling them that, you know, I know how bad you are, but someday if you play your cards right, you could be as good as me. Most people are kind of offended by that approach, and, <laughs> and, and they should be. The reason why God left us on this earth is because there are a whole lot of people in this world that need to be reached, and they are most effectively reached by people who are like them. Now, that doesn't mean that you go to an effort to, to be sinning with people so that you can share with them. But what it means is that we understand that we have something in common with everyone on this earth. That's what Christmas was about. That's why Jesus became a man, among other things among other reasons, was because that was the only way to reach people was person to person. And that's our task. That's what we are left to do. Contact people person to person. And if we either forget our own sins or deny them, or if we accentuate other people's sins so that it sounds like we think we're better than they are, then we lose that connection of the gospel. We lose our capacity to really share the good news. And all we're left with is a party spirit. All we're left with is we are in a holy huddle. 
we are in our own little world. We have our Christian worldview and they have their other worldview and we don't want anything to do with them. We want to isolate ourselves as much as we possibly can. That's not what we're here for. We're not here for separation or isolation. We are here for infiltration. We are called to go out and to make those connections with people who desperately need a Savior. And when we don't do that, we run a real risk of not having a Savior ourselves. We run a risk of, of preaching to others when we ourselves never really got it. And that's something that we should take seriously. We shouldn't just presume and assume certain things about ourselves. It's better if we look at what the Bible says. And if the Bible says, when you're doing this, it demonstrates that you're having a problem with this, we should take that seriously. We should always be concerned when we see ourselves focusing on other people's sins rather than our own. And finally, in talking about this, accusing or excusing them, verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men, women too, by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's the bottom line. The day is coming when God is going to judge secrets. The day is coming when all the phoniness that you can muster isn't going to cut it. The day is coming when we're all going to answer for our sins. And we will not answer for those sins based on whether we are better than our neighbors, whether we are better than the Baptists, or we're better than the emergents, or we're better than the Catholics, or whatever. The standard is Jesus Christ. Forget about everyone else. How do you measure up to Jesus Christ? In your most secretive heart of hearts, in who you really are, not just in what you do, but in what you think, with what you would do if you thought you could get away with it, or you weren't too tired. The secrets, that's where God meets us and judges us by Jesus Christ, and thank God for that last phrase, according to my gospel. I like when Paul calls it my gospel. It's my gospel too. Paul's saying, I got the good news. And that's the ultimate standard. When judgment day comes, it's only going to be about what did you do with Jesus Christ? It's not going to be about all those other things we argue about or get tripped on and, and exaggerate and point out. It's just about the gospel. What did you do with the good news? Did you receive it as good news, receive the grace of God, and then live the grace of God by showing his grace to others, by realizing that your calling in life is to share good news? If so, you don't have anything to worry about in the future. But if that hasn't become yours personally, or if you are one of those who thought you had it, who knew the answers, who studied the issues, who were very religious and judged yourself on the curve compared to other people, and then you find out in the last days, as I never knew you, you're, you're reprobate. You didn't bear the indications that you're the real deal. You seem to be, but the secrets that you kept, the lies that you told, the way that you lived, the way that you judged, should have tipped you off that something was wrong. Boy, the first emergency buzzer ought to go off if you can look at your own life and go, I don't know anywhere where I'm sinning. I've had people tell me that. <laughs> you know, it's always fun sometimes you go, well, do you have any sin in your life? No. What? <laughs> Man, are you deceived. 
all sin and come short of the glory of God. But the grace of God meets that, trumps that, gives victory over that, but we have to live in the grace of God. And that's his point in this section. And now he's going to go on, and next week we'll see him address specifically Judaism and what he needed to share with them specifically. But I hope by now you're at the point where you're just going, I just want to be a child of the gospel. I just want his grace. I, I, I need that. I depend on that. I want to live it. I, I want to demonstrate it to others. Because um, this book of Romans is just going to get better and better as we discover the keys to how to live this out. How does this actually work? So far in this section, he's only trying to tear down those things that destroy us, those misconceptions, that religiosity and that judgmentalism. But he's going to move as we go through this book and show you how this actually works. But sometimes before you do construction, you have to do a little demo and that's what he's been doing in these first couple of chapters and finishing that off kind of in chapter three. Let's pray. Lord, your word is always true and right. And if you say that when we judge others, it shows that we have unresolved issues with you, we believe you. So Lord, help us to not forget this. And when we start thinking that we don't, can't figure out how people could ever sin the way they do, convict our hearts. Remind us that every one of us on the judgment day will stand just completely empty-handed. And the only thing that will get us off is what Jesus did on the cross and his grace and how grateful we are for that grace. And Lord, as we continue to study this book of Romans, prepare our hearts and teach us to live in grace, to live this out in a way that our lives will look like what they're supposed to look like when you're forgiven. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.